Hello, this is Cleo Pascal, and welcome to Chatham House's Strategic Perceptions of the Indo-Pacific. This episode, we're in Tokyo in Japan. It's early March 2020, and we're just starting to realize that COVID-19 might change everything. But we're still able to meet in person, so we just held our experts roundtable, thanks to the great work done by our partner, the Indo-Pacific Studies Group. Japan was one of the originators of the free and open Indo-Pacific concept, and the discussions explored how that concept might fare over the next few years. You can get a taste of some of what was said from the insights offered by our guests. Our first guest is retired Vice Admiral Yoji Koda, former fleet commander of Japan. He has a deep understanding of strategic shifts in the region, and it was particularly helpful to be able to speak with him. Also helpful was speaking with our next guest, Yusuo Naito, who's the editor-in-chief of Japan Forward, an English-language news site that covers Japan internally, but also externally in terms of its relationships with its neighbors and in the region. Then we'll be hearing from Yosuke Naito. He's a writer and a researcher in philately studies, so he comes at this from a very interesting and unique perspective. So please settle in as we head to Tokyo. My name is Yoji Koda. I was a... Uh... 40 years long experience in Japanese Navy, and I ended up with the fleet commander of Japan. I'd say since end of Cold War, I started making some examination or research activities on Chinese naval strategy and development. How did uh, China's approach to the region change over the last 20 years or so? You know, they say, until the change of the century, till the Chinese Navy or military was relatively weak. So China had a pretty clear objective or intention to preserve its national rights and interest around their countries, including the South China Sea and East China Sea. But in, for example, but in 1990s, they do not have any real physical military capabilities. So around that period, basically what happened was kind of the vocal war between the, the exchanging the hard foreign policy or economic policies. But say after the change of the century, China started gaining the real military capability. So China changes, started changing their uh, security maneuver from the vocal war type to the intimidation type maneuver, you know, using their military as the background and to approach those regional nations. What had been the, the obstacle for the Chinese maneuver was the presence of the US military. That's why China really wants to keep US out of the region. And this is the, kind of the core element of the Chinese so-called A2AD, anti-access area denial concept there. Yeah. And how does Japan fit into that? You know, two things. Historically, the China, at least last three or 4,000 years period, China had been the single overwhelming superpower in the region, except what they call the one point half centuries humiliated period, starting from 1840 to 1990s, you know. Except that 150 years period, China 
has been really the single hegemonic power. And Japan was the only one exception. You know, Japan was not any tributary nation at any moment to, toward China. So Japan, thanks to the, the surrounding waters, so Japan had been impregnable by Chinese military approach. So Japan had been challenging the, the Chinese hegemonic maneuvers. So that's a kind of the Japanese, you know, the 2000 years long sense of security. So for Japan, or eyes of Japan, the China has always been the security threat. And really Japan fought four major wars during the last 2000 years period, and mainly on Korean Peninsula. And every case Japan lost, except the last one, the Sino-Japanese War in 1894-5. The, the Japan won, but other than that, you know, the China was a, a huge challenger to the Japanese security. That's one thing. And second thing, especially, you know, the, after the end of the Cold War, China started making the progress both in the economy and militarily. So Japan started thinking, would it be good? And would China be really involved in the international community or international norm? And our observation was not really, perhaps, but not really. So for Japan, kind of the best course of action in 1990s and, 2000 and 2010 was, you know, to strengthen the U.S.-Japan alliance and maintain the U.S. presence there or here. And that really, you know, the, put the right foot on the brake of the Chinese maneuver, you know. That's the last thing for China to happen. So really, China wants to control the area, trying to keep the U.S. out. And Japan tried to maintain the U.S. presence in, in the region. So this is not the physical war, but you know, the basic or fundamental policy toward Asia, the China and Japan is not kind of the head on collision course. You know? yeah. And as you see the Chinese presence expanding in other parts of the Pacific, the South Pacific, mm. and even into the Indian Ocean, has that affected Japanese policy? To some extent, yes. But really, if your question is, is any Japanese government in the past so serious about Chinese expansion in the Pacific Island? No, because Pacific Island is not the real economic market for the Japanese you know, the industries. So for Japan, it's good to keep the good relationship, but it's not the must-be relationship. So Japanese government in the past was pretty indifferent about the Chinese political and economic intrusion in the, the Pacific Island. So now, you know, the many islands, Pacific Island countries are shifting from the Taiwan diplomacy to the Chinese diplomacy. So we are losing. So. But now, the last several years, Japanese government started understanding the, the reality. So now, recently, oh, wait a minute, but still, does the Japanese government really have a, the good policy and strategy toward Pacific Island nations in terms of the Chinese expansion? I'd say no, not yet. How about uh, some of the newer or renewed players in the region, like the UK post-Brexit or France with its renewed Indo-Pacific policy? Okay. 
of course, one advantage of France over UK is France, at least they have the military bases and presence, even very small. So, you know, but in a peacetime conflict, or I'd say uh, rivalry or competition, the number of the military is not so important. Even small one French frigate flying the, the French flag really send a clear message to Beijing. I am here and I am watching you. We have been concerned about your activity. So in that sense, you know, the, the role of the, the France has been, I'd say, pretty important. And, but on the other hand, British withdrawal from the east of Suez a long time ago, and also the, the Hong Kong, that's the, 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 the last minute. The, really, the UK has real continuous presence in the region. So once in a while, so sending the, especially the UK Navy force or nuclear submarines or some frigate, or even fighters to Japan and South Korea are valuable. But, you know, the, but still the continuous 24-7 type presence, even small, is necessary. But still, it's getting better and encouraging that the U.S. government started showing more intent to keep the closer relationship with Japan or U.S. And say, for example, UK announced the, their intent to send the Queen Elizabeth I, a UK carrier to the region is also convincing. But the key thing is, would Beijing really understand the intent of the UK or not? You know? In that context, I think the continuous presence has more valuable than the kind of the interrupted presence like the UK, yeah. And with the India-Japan relationship, what direction do you see it going over the next four years? In general, it would get closer and closer. Today, much closer. And even, say, a long time ago, before the independence of the India, and, you know, the general Indians really liked Japan, and especially after the Japanese modernization in the 1868, India really respected Japan. So, and also the, the Jap Japanese people around that period you know, started respecting India as the big country. So mutual respect has been very good. And I'd say second to none. Also, the more economic capability and stronger military China has, the closer our India-Japan relationship would be and should be. So it, it's natural, but at the same time, there are some differences. The key thing is how the India and Japan politically adjust the difference of the, their own national interest. So that would be the key to the future success of the you know, bilateral cooperation between Japan and India. Looking forward to 2024, what is the best case scenario and what's the worst case scenario? Okay, the best case scenario is, you know, the China really understand the, I would say, the anger of the American peoples in terms of the, what American calls unfair economic conduct, and transform 
China or themselves to the standard of the today's international norm. If that happens in next four years period, that would be the best. And worst scenario is China still maintains its hardline policy and so much are afraid of the losing face toward the United States and also its own people. And China refused to transform itself. That would be the worst scenario in the next four years. And if that is the case, there are some possibilities of military at head-on, all-out military conflict between China and the United States would happen. So from the international com community's point of view, that is the last thing we want. So we need to convince the China. You may lose some phase, but transform yourself as soon and, and as quick as possible to the international norm and standard. That's what we should do. My name is Yasuo Naito. I'm the editor-in-chief of Japan Forward, the Sanken Shimbun's English outlet. We're just two years and a half here. It's a startup media. Could you tell me a little bit about Japan's geopolitical situation now within the Indo-Pacific? Well, Japan is very good position and bad position as well. In terms of bad position, is that Japan is so close to China, and we're now experiencing the, well, let's say the attack of uh, COVID-19 coronavirus, and we're seeing, you know, whether we we can contain the virus or not. That's a, a very important issue as the Tokyo Olympic Games, which we're now planning to have this summer, might be cancelled. So if it is cancelled, it's going to be the first time in its Olympic history. So it's going to be very, very bad reputation for Japan itself and the Japanese economy as well. So in that case, China is the biggest problem. And it used to be a kind of big opportunity for Japan, but we're now facing the risk more than the opportunity. Looking forward, as China continues to expand, how do you think Japan can handle that complicated relationship that you're talking about? Japan and China has a very um, complicated historical issues, and that's why, well, Japanese, uh, well, uh, elite is kind of eager to uh, maintain good relationship with China. That's partially, of course, the economical reasons, but historical agenda, I think. That's why the Japanese people, especially elderly generations, that uh, has the, some kind of uh, guiltiness or something like that. It's because of the Second World War. And that's why the Japan helped to raise China, even after the Tiananmen massacre. Uh, Japan is the first country, uh, even the, that time was that China was uh, isolated from the world, but uh, Japan had started to uh, helping China. And this makes the China kind of stronger position. And what we are now seeing is that the generosity from Japan was hit by the Chinese kind of virus. And uh, we're kind of in a very uh, critical moment. In the future, the government, Abe, is trying to maintain a good relationship but as far as we see in a Japanese kind of opinion polls, that even the Sankei FNN-led opinion poll shows that a sharp decline of support to Prime Minister Abe and Abe government. So what's going to be in the future, whether 
it's going to be the Fukushima moment after the Fukushima disaster. You know, the, that time, Democratic Party's uh, Prime Minister Khan has lost the power. Same thing might happen to Prime Minister Abe. The question is that, you know, of, of course, uh, how we're going to handle this China problem. That's the kind of biggest issue for Japan, I think. That includes the official visit that where, you know, the, the, the Japanese media is now actively talking about whether, you know, Chinese Xi Jinping will visit in this April even this coronavirus situations. So looking forward to 2024, about four years down the line, yeah. what's the best case scenario for Japan and what's the more difficult scenario for Japan? I hope, of course, an uh, optimistic uh, scenario that Admiral Koda said that when the China uh, uh, change their position by themselves. But if the China decides to uh, isolate themselves in terms of that they determine to not to kind of become a, under the, let's say, the Western system to create a new system, that's going to be the huge impact, I think. And uh, what Japan will do? Well, uh, Japan has no other option but to take the side with US. So in that case, that's very complicated and uh, it's going to be very tough years ahead, I think. My name is Naito, Yosuke Naito. So I'm also a philatelist. So philatelist is not only a hobby, but also but also, uh, the academic philatelist. So analyst of history of international politics uh, using the so, uh, positive stamps and covers and so postmark and so on, so materials. Uh, so my, uh, one of my main work is so, uh, Hong, uh, history of Hong Kong. So and so I wrote a book about uh, so Macau, history of Macau. And so then so in uh, one chapter, so I wrote uh, uh, I wrote a short history of Kajin in Macau based on Chinese uh, Chinese uh, source. Uh, because there are some theoretical material relating to the subject. Uh, I mentioned about the wall Wang uh, Kokoi, uh, pro, uh, popularly known as Broken Tooth Koi, uh, who was uh, until his arrest in 1998, uh, uh, the leader of the Macau branch of the 14K triad and gang war with Shi uh, Fong. And Dr. Hayakawa uh, read it and asked me to talk about, a little about his story. Yeah. You were talking a little bit about how the Chinese government uses criminal elements. Yes, So because uh, um, Broken Tooth was arrested and so in jail until 2012, so after release, he restarted so illegal business, uh, of legal business, both legal and illegal business. And so uh, maybe so, so that's uh, so the very overlapped with the Chinese policy of the one, load, one belt, one load. So uh, I think this his activity reminds me of the, so, the, the relation between the United States and the Italian mafia like, uh, like Luciano during World War II. Uh, so uh, China uh, uses such, such kind of the people to expand their uh, influence in, uh, in countries, small countries. Uh, gambling and prostitution and drug and so on. Mm -hmm. And what effect does that have on the countries that, that oh, yes, it happens yes, in? Yes, yes. So because uh, they, so as gangsters, uh, 
make us a base. Base for the people. They so called so gangsters, they acting. So then so the basis then so the normal laborers, normal stuff, normal Chinese come. So they made the Chinese town, a Chinese area. And so if there's something trouble, so they so uh, how we say uh, maybe the small country has a sort of, uh, tendency of the corruption. Can the Japanese government help? No, the Japanese government ignored. But so um, because of uh, I think so there are two reasons. Of course, the Japanese government uh, they also retired after the World War II in such area. Uh, but so the second point, so Australia, and New Zealand, uh, they never like to be, uh, like to, uh, they never uh, welcome Japanese presence in this area. Uh, so uh, many Japanese people uh, never talk about uh, anti-Japanese sentiment in other countries. Uh, for example, uh, now so some Anzac people uh, blame Japanese of the uh, Japanese whaling. Mm-hmm. Maybe so today, so from the viewpoint of the ecology, but so even so on the country of the whaling country, yeah. they, when, uh, when they whale, do whaling, so they blame Japanese whaling. <laughs> so uh, maybe because of, uh, so, the, the anti-sentiment, the, the anti-Japanese sentiment, the reason for the, the, the anti-Japanese sentiment is so, uh, based on the fear, fear of the Japanese military was, uh, before the war. Right. So, so that sentiment still ex- strongly exists in some part of that country. Mm-hmm. So they saw exclusive Japanese influence, but then, so, they should the management for the such small countries and so involvement, but also they never do. They, do not, they did nothing. And that was Strategic Perceptions of the Indo-Pacific from Japan. This is the last in our series of podcasts. We're very grateful to all those who gave their valuable time and shared their insights for these interviews. The Indo-Pacific is highly dynamic, and our best way to avoid strategic surprises is by listening to each other. So above all, from all of us, thank you for listening.